I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church exists to pursue transformation by truth and grace together for the glory of Jesus Christ. And as we gather each and every Lord's Day morning and evening to sit under the preaching of the Word together, uh, that is the primary way uh, that we are transformed by the God's Word of truth and by His Word of grace. If you're visiting with us, we are just beginning, have just begun a new series in the Gospel of Luke. And so we come now uh, to this uh, familiar passage, a glorious reminder of who Jesus is, of what God has done for us uh, through his Son. Luke chapter 1, reading together verses 26 to 38. Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. King Jesus, we thank you that you are seated on David's throne at the right hand of your father in heaven. Would you even now fill us with your spirit that we might know who you are, that we might see the glory of what God has done in sending you into this world. Lord, would you give us grace to respond appropriately to this passage? Lord, would you transform us by this truth, by your sovereign saving grace? Do it together, Lord. We are the body of Christ. We are your people, and we desire to grow in our love for you and for one another. So come, we pray, and change us by your grace. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In the year 2010, the way that people announce their pregnancies or the genders of their baby or the birth of their baby changed radically. That's because in 2010, Instagram and Pinterest were created. The internet tells me that 
Uh, gender reveal parties originated in the late 2000s, but it wasn't until Instagram and Pinterest were created that gender reveal became a household term and all of a sudden parents were, were, were striving to one-up one another in how they presented uh, the, the, the birth of their baby or their pregnancy. All I know is I'm thankful that our last child was born in 2012 uh, before Instagram and Pinterest became a thing. Now in our study of Luke's gospel this morning, we come to a pregnancy announcement to a, a gender reveal that will never be surpassed. This text has historically been called the Annunciation, referring to the announcement that, that Mary is going to give birth to a baby boy. Now, typically, a birth announcement is made by the parents of the child. But in our text this morning, Mary is not doing the telling. Mary is the one being told the same angel Gabriel who had gone to Zechariah and Elizabeth and told them that they were going to have a baby boy named John comes to Mary. And Gabriel's announcement is far more than a gender reveal, isn't it? For in this announcement, in these words to Mary, he is telling her that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, to the King of Israel, the King of God's people, and that in a manner of speaking, she will be the mother even of God. And so through this encounter, Luke is teaching us. He is teaching us in particular how God sent his son into the world. And we see at least three things. He sent his son into the world surprisingly. He sent his son into the world specifically and slowly. And he sent his son into the world strongly. Let's look at these things together. First, God sent his son into the world surprisingly. Now, when Gabriel came from heaven to foretell the birth of the Messiah's forerunner, you remember that he appeared to Zechariah the priest, one of Israel's spiritual leaders, and he appeared to Zechariah in the capital city of Jerusalem in the temple, the center of Israel's religion. But God did not send his son into a priestly family, did he? nor was his son from uh, the, the capital city, city the, the, the center of, of, of focus for Israel's religious life or political life. He was not from where you might think a king would come from. Right? Rather, God sends his son into the family of a young teenage girl who lived in a tiny village called Nazareth, about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem in the hill country of Galilee, and in circumstances that can only be described as scandalous. And each part of, of the background of Jesus is surprising, isn't it? Think first about the town where Jesus is from, Nazareth. It was a small town. The historians estimate anywhere between 200 people, the, the size of, say, French Camp, Mississippi, uh, to 2,000 people, the, the size of Mendenhall, Mississippi. But, but like both of those towns in Mississippi, Nazareth also lay on a, a major trade route. And, and so it wasn't so much that it was you know, completely out in the sticks. It was you know, a hick town that no one ever had heard about, no one ever went there. Uh, but it was a small town. It was an insignificant town. It was even a despised town. Perhaps you remember in John chapter 1, verse 46, when Nathaniel asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, that was the way people thought about this town where Jesus was from. Some people even thought it was an unclean town. 
Because all the way back in the 700s BC, when Assyria had come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and had brought its own people in that land, Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. So here's this insignificant town, this despised town, this unclean town. How surprising that God would ordain this town of Nazareth as the hometown of his son. And think of Jesus' mom. Who was Mary? Well, she was no one special, right? Certainly she wasn't expecting the sort of greeting that, that Gabriel gave her. Notice in verse 28 that it's his saying, it's his greeting that, that, that troubled her, that perplexed her, that confused her. She must have been wondering, has this man, has this angel come to the wrong address? Is he talking to me? Right? Looking behind her shoulder, who's he referring to? How surprising that God would come to a teenage girl with an announcement like this. Now, we don't know exactly how old Mary was, but she was old enough to, to head off to Elizabeth's house by herself, as we see in verse 39. Uh, but almost certainly she was a teenager. In those days, young girls, as young as 12 or 13, could be betrothed to be married. And it's that betrothal that's also an aspect of surprise in this story, isn't it? Luke tells us she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And, and in those days, betrothal was, was far more serious, far more official than our modern engagements. It was something that would have been formally witnessed. It would have been accompanied by the exchanging of gifts. There would have been the, the bride price from the, the, the groom to the bride's family. There would have been the dowry from the, the bride to the, the groom's family. Uh, the, 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 the man and the woman didn't live together. They didn't sleep together yet. But, but if you go to Matthew chapter one, you see that, that even in their betrothed state, Joseph is called Mary's husband. And in Deuteronomy 22, we see that, that sleeping with a betrothed woman was tantamount to adultery. This is how serious betrothal was. And so when betrothed Mary would have shown up pregnant, Joseph would have been within his rights to divorce her. And again, in Matthew chapter one, we see that when Joseph does discover that Mary is pregnant, he has to be persuaded by an angelic messenger to not do just that. Imagine what others would have been saying about Mary or would have been saying about Mary and Joseph together as a couple, all the raised eyebrows, all the whispers behind their back. And this reputation of being an illegitimate child seems to have stuck with Jesus throughout his life. In John chapter eight, verse 41, uh, the Jews appear to mock him by saying, we weren't born of fornication, right? We have only one father, God. The insinuation being that Jesus had more than one father and that he was born of fornication. Why would God send his son into our world in such surprising ways? to this nobody young girl in a nobody town, apparently out of wedlock, with all the shame and all the disgrace that that would have brought upon him. Well, God does it this way because God loves to surprise us with his grace, doesn't he? Just like he surprised Mary with his grace. Look again at Gabriel's greeting. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, this is, perhaps you recognize, the, the basis for the Romanist prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. 
You see, the the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the New Testament that Jerome had made back in the 380s, it translated that that term that's translated here, favored, the Latin translated as full of grace. Now, it's not necessarily a bad translation unless you understand it to mean that Mary possesses grace that we can ask her to bestow upon men and women, which is exactly how Rome does understand that term full of grace. But how wrong this is, how unscriptural this is. We should only pray to God through Jesus Christ, never to any human, whether alive or dead, and only God can bestow grace. And that's exactly what God did in Mary's life. He bestowed grace upon Mary, who was a sinner in need of salvation, as she herself will confess in verse 47. Though she was no one special, God had graciously, mercifully made her special. Though she was a nobody, God had made her a somebody. And in fact, one of the most significant somebodies in all of human history. Out of pure, undeserved grace, God chose to send his son into the world in these humble circumstances through a young teenage girl, someone we'd least expect to be the mother of a king, so that she might bear and raise the Christ. How surprising this grace would have been even to Mary. But doesn't God still love to surprise us with his grace? How does Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the base things of the world, the the despised things of the world God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, that no one would boast before God. For by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. We sing amazing grace. We might just as well sing surprising grace. This grace that would shock us, that would come out of nowhere to people like us, to people like Mary. God has sent his son into the world surprisingly. But secondly, he sent him into the world specifically and slowly. I guess this is actually second and third, right? 2A and 2B. Gabriel's announcement shows that when God sends his son into the world, he is fulfilling so many of the promises that he made in centuries past. And he's doing it in very specific ways. We can start with the very first promise of a coming savior, Genesis 3, 15. You remember when Adam and Eve disobeyed and and, and they disobeyed God, but they obeyed Satan and they ate from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You remember that God did not leave them without hope in that situation, did he? No, he allowed them to listen in as he cursed Satan and declared that that an offspring of the woman, an offspring of Eve, would be born into the world who would strike the serpent's head, destroying it and saving God's people. And so Jesus comes into the world as a human, born of a woman, the offspring, the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve. Why? To save sinners from all the effects and sin, from all the tyranny of Satan. His name is Jesus. What does the name Jesus mean? Jesus is the the Greek translation of Yeshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. 
When we say Jesus, we are saying that Yahweh, the Lord, is the Savior. Jesus has come into this world to save sinners. He will save his people from their sins. Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. But it's not just any woman, is it, who gives birth to Jesus. As Mary literally puts it in verse 34, it's a woman who has not known a man. It's a virgin. And what does this fulfill? Even though Luke doesn't quote it, this truth fulfills Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin conception. What does Isaiah prophesy? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this verse foretold that Jesus would be born of a virgin as well. Does it foretold, foretell that, that, that the, the, the one who would come into the world, the one who would be born of a woman would also be fully divine, God with us? And thus Gabriel follows up in verses 32 and 35 by saying that Jesus is the son of the most high, the son of God. In him, the fullness of deity dwells in human form. For Jesus is not only the son of God, but he is the son of David, right? David is his earthly ancestor. Now it's not clear what tribe Mary was from. The text doesn't say, some scholars say she was from the tribe of Levi since Elizabeth was one of her relatives. Others would say that it's possible that she too, like Joseph, was from the tribe of Judah. But it is clear, it's explicit that Joseph was from the tribe of Judah. He was from the house of David. And so as David's, as Jesus's legal father, legal guardian, as it were, he is in the line of David. God has given to Jesus the throne of his father, David, as you see there in verse 32. He is the anointed human king of the house of Jacob, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, who reigns forever and ever as we saw this morning from 2 Samuel 7, all those covenant promises made to David have been fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, when we read of the everlasting kingdom that will come and will never be shaken, Daniel 7 is fulfilled as well. Remember what Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 writes. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Think of how specific God is accomplishing and fulfilling his promises here in the announcement of Jesus' birth. We could go on and on and on at how God's word was fulfilled specifically in the birth of Jesus. Even details of location, right? Isaiah 9-1 prophesied that he would come from Galilee. As Christian preached for us last Sunday night, Micah 5 prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. All these specific film fulfillments of the scriptures and the birth of Jesus are, are one of the most impressive proofs that the Bible is not merely the word of man, but it is the word of God. God's promises never fall to the ground. He will accomplish, he will fulfill his purposes in his time and in his way. God sent his son into the world specifically, but also slowly, Right? Because in his time, 
often means, from a human perspective, very, very slowly. And all the prophecies I've just mentioned were made hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus was born. To our human reckoning, our human counting, God often seems very, very slow. If you've ever seen the movie Zootopia, you remember the scene in the DMV with Flash the Sloth, with the DMV run by sloths. That slowness, that's often the way it feels. We're like that little rabbit, just come on, do a little quicker, God. And God is slow. And this is one of the, the reasons why a key element of faith in the scriptures, particularly in the book of Psalms, is this, this aspect of waiting on God. What does it mean to be a man, a woman of faith? It means that you wait. You are learning how to wait, to wait on God. And even now, we wait. As the saints of old waited for the first coming. They didn't know it was a first coming. They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Come to find out it is a first coming and we continue to wait. We continue to long for Jesus to come again. And and as we wait, we take heart from the slowness of the specific fulfillment of, of God's word in his first coming. Don't forget what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Just like the saints who were waiting for Messiah to be born we don't know exactly how or, or when all of these promises are going to come to pass, but we trust that, that w- when we look back at the fulfillment of them from the vantage of the last day, right, we will be able to see the same specificity through slowness that we see even here in our text this morning. So God sent his son into the world surprisingly. He sent him to the world su- specifically yet slowly Finally, he sent his son into the world strongly. Go back to Mary's question in verse 34. It's an odd question in a way, isn't it? Here's Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph. So she very easily could have understood what Gabriel was saying to her, that, hey, once you and Joseph get married, you're going to have a baby who's going to be the king. I mean, that would make logical sense, right? Given her her state, given her circumstances. But the fact that she asked this question reveals that that she understood that what Gabriel was talking about was not a a, a post-marriage conception, not a normal conception, but an immediate conception, a supernatural conception. She knew that there's only one way that a baby is made, and, and she was a virgin, Zechariah, you remember, had asked, how will I know this for sure? Because I'm old and Elizabeth's old. But Mary asked, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin, I don't intend to forfeit my virginity until marriage. So you see that, that she's not rebuked for her question the way that Zechariah was, because her question was not motivated from a lack of faith, but from a lack of understanding as how in the world is this going to happen? And so Gabriel gives her an answer, and it's an answer that is vital to our understanding of who Jesus is. He tells her that her pregnancy would come about by the power of God. Look at 
Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. We often don't we call the birth of Jesus the virgin birth. It's a little misleading because the, the birth, the, the labor and delivery of Jesus was actually no different than any other labor and delivery. Very painful, right? What really occurred was the virgin conception. That's what Christians believe. We believe in the virgin conception. We believe that it was a conception like, unlike any in human history. There was no human fertilization at all. It was by the mighty working of God's spirit overshadowing Mary that her egg became a baby boy. The Holy Spirit creates this zygote. He supplies 23 chromosomes to Mary's 23 chromosomes. He does the work. And in that same act of, of creating this zygote, this fetus, he is setting apart Jesus's human nature so that it does not bear any taint of sin from Mary's nature. Jesus is not in Adam. Jesus is not guilty of sin. Jesus is not sinful in any way as we are. And in that same act of creation, he unites the second person of the Trinity to that human nature so that Jesus from conception is the God-man, the one person with two natures, savior of his people. By the powerful presence of the Spirit, Gabriel says, Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now you may be tempted to say along with the world, that's ridiculous. Like that doesn't happen. This sort of thing, everyone knows that virgins don't conceive. Well, everyone knew it back then as well. Like this wasn't something, oh yeah, yeah. The other day I saw my, my friend over there and she was a virgin and she conceived. No, like this didn't happen. That's why Mary's asking the question. And even then there were mockers who would have debunked it, who would have scoffed at it. But God is strong. God is able to do whatever God wants to do. He can do all of his holy will, as the children's catechism says. And to strengthen Mary's faith and ours, he gives Mary this unasked for sign, that of Elizabeth's barren birth. Right, if God can give her a child in her old age, then certainly God can give you a child apart from the normal sexual relationship. Nothing will be impossible with God says Gabriel, quoting Genesis chapter 18, when God says to Sarah, is anything too difficult for me? Even though, you know, you're 90, Abraham's 100, nothing's too difficult for me. God is the God who can do whatever he wants to do according to his holy will, who is not bound by human limitations. And what an encouragement this is for us, even today, in the face of all of our circumstances that seem so intractable, so unchangeable, whether it's a marriage that's stuck in neutral, even in reverse, whether it's a child who has rebelled against the Lord and, and you have no idea how is this child ever going to come back to faith, whether it's a sin that's as, as entrenched in your heart as a World War I soldier was entrenched in his fighting, God is able to do anything. And so we must pray to him zealously. You remember Perhaps you haven't read the book of Jeremiah in a while. There's this chapter 32 where Jeremiah is told by God, look, 
I know that Nebuchadnezzar is outside the walls of Jerusalem. He's besieging Jerusalem. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to buy a plot of land, right? And I want you to, to get the deed and, and put that deed into an earthen vessel where it can last for a long, long time. And I want you to go and, and do something that seems on the, on the surface completely ridiculous, to buy and sell land, to enter into a real estate transaction while you know, Nebuchadnezzar is out there about to invade and destroy everything. But I want you to go and I want you to own that piece of land. I want you to get the deed and I want you to hide it away. Why? Because my word is going to come to pass. Nothing is too difficult for me. And so in, in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah prays to the Lord and his prayer begins, Ah, Lord God, you've made the heavens and the earth. Nothing is too difficult for you, but I don't understand why you're asking me to do this, right? This makes no sense to me at all. But nothing is too difficult for God. God is the God of all flesh. He's the God who made heaven and earth by his great power, by his outstretched arm. He's the great and the mighty God who brought his people out of Egypt with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm. He's the God who gave aged Zechariah and Elizabeth a baby. He's the God who created a child miraculously in the womb of Mary. Nothing is too difficult for him. He is a strong God. He can do anything that he wants to do. So this is how God sent his son into the world, surprisingly, specifically, and slowly, and, and strongly. As we close, I want us to close with, with, with two applications by way of response. Applications that flow from this text, one from our, for our mind and one for our will, for our choices. First, the application for our mind. Let us never forget, as we read this text, Never forget that the virgin conception of Jesus Christ is a vital doctrine that, that ensures that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, that he is the son of Mary and the son of God. And we desperately need him to be both. Why do I say that? Jesus had to be human because he was coming to save humans. He had to be human because humans had sinned. Jesus had to take to himself a true body and a rational soul so that he might obey and suffer in our nature. As one of the church fathers put it, the unassumed is the unhealed. And Jesus has assumed our nature. He is fully human, but he's also fully God so that he would not be in Adam, so that he would not be under the covenant of works, under the guilt and the penalty of that covenant. He would not be deserving of punishment for his own sin. He had to be fully God so that he could come into this world and live a perfect life, a sinless life, and that he might die an undeserved death for a multitude of men and women, boys and girls, whom no man can number. You see, the Son of God can sympathize with us in our weaknesses and our temptation, for he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And he has done this so that we humans, like himself, we might be saved. The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven even now. Jesus is reigning now over his church. At the right hand of the Father, he is sitting on the throne of David over us, the Israel of God, the house for his name that God is building, as we saw there in 2 Samuel 7. 
So this is something we must believe in response to this text. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And both are absolutely necessary for our salvation. But the second application to our will, look at the words that Mary speaks in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. These words, brothers and sisters, they are the epitome of Christian discipleship. Mary doesn't command God. She doesn't dictate to God. She submits to God. She submits her life to God's word, to God's will. She accepts his will in spite of all the shame and all the, the suffering that it would bring into her life. I mean, I mean, think about it. We don't know the whole story, but she is about to go to Joseph at some point and say, I'm pregnant. And we don't know how that conversation went, but we know from Matthew 1 that Joseph, being a righteous man, was resolved to, to, to divorce her quietly. Like, so even if she said, no, an angel appeared to me and said, this is what happened, he'd be like, yeah, right. Mary, in submitting to God there in verse 38, knows what it lies ahead, knows the shame, knows perhaps the, the ruin of her life, but is willing to obey the Lord. And what is Luke doing by recording these words for us, but calling us to imitate Mary and her faith and her obedience and her willingness to follow the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense to our own minds and her acknowledgement that, that we are God's servants. Our calling is to do his bidding. To say, Lord, whatever you would have me to do, I'm here. I'm, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I noted earlier that we ought not to make too much of Mary. Right? She's not full of grace to dispose to other people. She's not sinless. But we ought not to make too little of Mary either. Mary is a woman, a teenage girl, to be emulated, to be followed, to be imitated as she imitates Christ, her very own son. What an amazing young lady she was. May the Lord enable us as we meditate on the ways in which he sent his son into this world for us and for our salvation, may we respond even this day, even this week with the same world, words of professed discipleship as Mary does. Lord, we are your servants. Whatever you want us to do, we will do it. Even as Jesus said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done to the point of death, death for our sins. He is our Savior. He is Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, the Son of David, our prophet, our priest, and our King. Let us live for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray, to respond appropriately in the things we believe about you, the things we believe about your son, the way that we live. Oh Lord, be pleased, we ask, 
to transform us by this truth. And by your grace, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.